Greetings, Space Burgers, and welcome to the Space Cave. A big warg to all of you. I'm David Huntsberger, and if you're back for part two, it means you enjoyed part one, and I did as well. Before we get into it, just a reminder that I'll be in Winnipeg at Rumors in January, the 14th through the 18th, my first time to Manitoba. If you live near the area, come on out, catch some stand-up. I'll be at the Dynasty Typewriter Sunday, January 26th, filming that as sort of a sequel to One-Headed Beast, which is uh, the first thing I made, and that's streaming on Amazon and Roku and a bunch of other different platforms. So if you have some sort of uh, Amazon stick or Roku box or PlayStation or however however in the world you get your media, do a search and see, and you uh, you might enjoy it. It's called One-Headed Beast. It's got stand-up and animation and uh, took a lot of people to make it. And we all were all pretty excited that it's um, finally able to be seen. So check it out if you get time and uh, and come see a live show. And thanks to those of you who do support the show on Patreon. The show is made possible by contributions from listeners just like you. It helps um, with hosting services, buying music, buying beer, etc., and uh, I really appreciate it. The beer for this episode is once again the Truth Serum IPA from Dogfish Head. Fantastic. I think it's available pretty widely. If you haven't tried it, give it a shot. It was delicious. Uh, well, here we are drinking a little bit more of it with the great James Urbaniak. Enjoy. Yeah, back in. And I I had like. We're back. We're back. I'm talking James Urbaniak. <laughs> I didn't know you did a killer Carson. <laughs> we used to, We're Kyle back. used to do it all the I time. I used to watch Carson all the time, too, like when I was in high school. I never watched it. I think it was just, a, I was a little late for that one as far as like, I was too young. Because to I would, wa- I like, I, lo- of course, like everyone from my generation and yours too, of course, loved Letterman. That one late night with David Letterman premiered on NBC. Mm-hmm. I also watched his morning show because mm-hmm. I had staggered sessions in high school. I used to go into school late one year because uh, there were so many kids, yeah. so many kids. And uh, I would watch his morning show. But the, the late show felt so special and amazing and like, this is our show. Uh, but I did also enjoy Carson and yeah. I would watch Carson regularly. Mm-hmm. Anyway, funny how we get the yeah. Conan was my guy, like in college especially. Just a lot of yeah. Late watching Conan, and it felt like just a playground that no one was paying attention to, or just silly, bizarre stuff was happening. Where I was like, "This is great." And I watched Conan uh, a a fair amount in the early years, but then you know I was sort of doing other things, and Mm -hmm. but like like being in. I remember uh, when Letterman's uh, show started. And there's a garbage truck outside, if you can hear that, yeah. folks. We're foleying that in. We're that a is... clean city. <laughs> uh, but um, 
Thank you, Mr. Garcetti, <laughs> for keeping our streets clean. It's not even I'm James garbage Rudani. day, though. <laughs> what is happening? They're just they're they're uh, they're racing out there. It's like American Graffiti with garbage trucks. <laughs> oh, hello! The dog just walked into the garage. But he burst in. He burst to the door. But, butted the door open. <laughs> All right. Anyway, yeah. So I watched uh, Carson and Letterman. That was the whole story. I'm full of great <laughs> anecdotes today. Well, the, the one we left off on was the um, Kurt Vonnegut one. I cannot believe yes. I couldn't remember his name. But what I love specifically about that is I have a lot of scientists on this show, and they yes. firmly, a lot of times, and I wouldn't say this is even 90% of them. It's probably more like 65, 70% of the time mm. are a very, I've seen no evidence of God or anything like that. I'm not superstitious. I think, you know, we're just kind of here. Everything is just randomness. But then the other side, you've got the artists that do believe in sort of like, I, th- I was thinking this, and then right at that moment, this happened. I was doing this, I read this thing, and then at my play, the author showed up. Those sort of synchronicities or weirdnesses. There's a thing that happens when you're in a kind of creative zone where uh, uh, when it's working well, there's, there's a magnetizing quality. Mm-hmm. And there's, uh, yeah, there's just a, 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 things just sort of start coming together and sort of almost like happening for a reason and so i guess that that dovetails with a kind of spiritual yeah. sensibility but i do find that that if you're creating something then uh it's like a magnet and things just start <laughs> sticking to it yeah so you're you're working on a play that's very satisfying you're inspired to read slaughterhouse five you do the play it becomes a huge hit in new york the New York Times writes it a love letter, and then Kurt Vonnegut comes to the play. Yeah. Somehow that just makes some sort of sense. <laughs> I, I Even agree. though there's no, those are all sort of separate events. Yeah. My working on the play is related to the play's run, but it has nothing to do with Kurt Vonnegut's decision to come to it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yes, but you could just, you could go either way. You could talk to someone who probably has some turquoise of some sort and is, would say, "Oh yeah, that was just the universe." And then you could explain away. A scientist could say this and this and this, and these are the logistical reasons. Or if you're on a larger scale, talking about the flow and the 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 way yes. that everything came together and the way it made your mind feel, someone could say, "Well, you're getting releases of dopamine. You're getting this. You're you know these sorts of things are coming into play." And you'd go, "Okay, great." But then what I love about where that intersection comes together is maybe sometimes and not to disparage scientists at all but the imagination can stop there we just don't know the end whereas artists would go yeah but why maybe there maybe we are in sort of a simulation and they they created this thing where when you get on the right track and things flow together and now your mind has wandered off into this fun place that is nothing there's no proof of it there's nothing tangible to say it exists but it just is fun to think about why was that such a great experience? Why did everything flow together? Why did I read mm-hmm. that book? Why did that guy show up? That creates, to me, a lot of fun, like fertile ground for imagining what could have put that in play. Yes. And uh, I dare say, when you take psychedelics, you see things linked and connected yeah. in crazy ways, mm-hmm. where the, the table is connected to the book and, and the yeah. words in the book are connected to the words your mother said or something mm-hmm. and uh because it gives you a little sense of the unfiltered connectedness of things you know we we can't function in the world thinking about all these connections we literally can't function and that's why we where our perception is limited because that's how we get through life and then occasionally you can take a uh, <laughs> a uh a thing that blows open the doors as they say 
And then, uh, and I, but there's like, there's actually a logic to that. Mm-hmm. I do believe. I think so. And then, but then that's very weird and spacey and, and it gets into, it certainly is religious because it's about the unknown and it's, and it's actually about faith to a degree, I realize. Any sort of artistic adventure is an act of faith in a sense. Uh, so, yeah, there you go. And well, let's take some calls. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, always, I love how people in the arts get a little dodgy at talking about that. When you go like, what do you think this is? What, why do you do what you do? Because existentially, you kind of want to say, I don't know. We're just here. And if I just sit there the whole time, that's boring. And if I remove myself, it's just so devastatingly sad to everyone around. I might as well stay busy and find something fun to do. Yes. But beyond that, if you get into like, what do you think it is? Or do you, cause when you do create something, when you finish it, there is a feeling there that's different than say you built and maybe it's not, you know, you build a little birdhouse or something. All right, I finished that. But when you conjured something out of your imagination and you put it together and all those things happen, like you're talking about where, yeah, then so-and-so just showed up in my life and they knew how to do this and they helped with it. And then this happened. So I got to say, if I built a birdhouse, I, I'm not good at that kind of thing. I can't build anything. Mm-hmm. Not like like uh, with my hands. I can make a little podcast play or something or sure. a performance. Uh-huh. But I would, I, if I built a little birdhouse, every time I looked at it, I would have a little pleasurable feeling. Really? I made that. I there made, it is. There's I the made, thing I made. I made this thing, I made, and I made this table. I don't, Amazing. Thanks, man. I, but I don't know <laughs> that I get that. I think I Really? I, yeah. I, when I use, I use that one more. The table just becomes a table, but that screen printing thing I use, and I guess at times I'll be like, I'm glad I made this, but don't I don't you know look that at I, it sometimes and go, hey, buddy. I just think I needed hey, old it. old table. Yeah. And so it's the equivalent of like if you needed a doorstop and I found something to wedge in there. Well, uh, Picasso needed... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Them's Wells de Davignon or whatever the hell it's called. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> is that all it is? Art is just like, I, I need this. I need this in my life and therefore I'm yeah, going to certainly a com- yeah, yeah, There's a compulsion element. There's just a... Yeah, there is. There's a sort of, I just have to do this. Yeah. And then there's the whole thing of what are you were you meant to do this? Yeah. I'm always fascinated by people who are at a certain age in their life and their life takes a turn and they get into a new very fulfilling thing. Yeah. I think about this a lot. Also at my age because, you know, you get into middle age and you start to uh you realize your life is sort of a series of chapters. And so uh, you know, there's like various corners that you're always turning. Yeah. Well, the, the early one, the acting one, starting into that. Because I, what you're oh, talking yes. about, I went. I feel at times I vacillate between being sort of a do or die trying person. I'll convince myself to like stick with something. And on the other side, being like, I want to just kind of go where the wind blows me. And if I'm more into making or doing or see, whatever it is, pursuing this, I'll do that. And that could come with age or whatever. But at some point especially when you get into the arts there is a 10 year old version of you watching the electric company there's a 15 year old version of you who's maybe smoked pot for the first time or had their first truly (laughs) interesting friend and then there's like 17 or 18 year old version of you that's like oh it's coming up i gotta go to the army i gotta go to college i gotta go get a job or something else when when you start making those decisions like were these all factors involved in it well, uh, first I got to say that when I was eight years old, uh, my parents got me a tape recorder, like a little portable battery-operated tape recorder from Radio mm-hmm. Shack with a condenser microphone. Cool. And I started making tapes, and I would make sk- sketches. And then I would have my friends come over, and if they had a tape recorder, we'd bring their tape recorder. It's like eight, nine, ten, 
11, 12, even into the age 13, uh, that period. Uh, and then I would record uh, TV shows uh, for sound effects. And so I had a collection of tapes that were just sound effects. And then we would write sketches and then I would have sound effects. Uh, and so we'd play them on the other tape recorder mm-hmm. and we'd make these little stories. And uh, I just had you do a voice on a scripted podcast, which is a thing I've been doing in the last few yeah, years. Yeah, I loved it. Which is just uh, uh, written. It's just me, age eight, making a <laughs> tape with my friends. Yeah. It's the same exact thing mm-hmm. that I was obsessed with when I was eight years old. It's the same exact thing. And but, now I'm doing that and, and very excited about it. But don't you all... Like, sharing I, it with the, the country. Yeah. And the world. I think when we look <laughs> back, though... <laughs> and listen to it. The, go, go listen to it. It's a really great story. It's really cre- uh, clever, well-written. The characters are vibrant. And I think when we look back on our childhood and go, oh, yeah, like I have these this amount of things that say... Oh, it always seemed like I would have been a comedian. But yes. then also, there were gloves put on me to catch baseballs there were bats there sure. were I was a million league. other things yeah you have like all, but none of them took in the same way that some of the other ones did and this is the this is sort of this is also the formula that every biographer uses they're like and then Abe Lincoln uh, spoke to his class mm-hmm. and he had written his report on a <laughs> small piece of paper uh, foreshadowing the Gettysburg Address, which he wrote on an envelope, like they owe you. <laughs> yeah. And Dave Huntsberger began cracking jokes at recess. The first glimmerings <laughs> of a stand-up career. You know? Yeah. James Rubaniak made little tapes. Yep. And then made podcasts. Did nothing else. P- plays. Yeah. Yes. Did, always just walked around every hour of his life recording his friends into this little <laughs> recorder. But that's that's kind of a trope of biography, but it's because it is real. Mm-hmm. I think there are, when you're a kid, you... You start to, you are like a, I mean, you're a version of yourself. And, and I think, I think in a sense, your, your obsessions are, are sort of almost there, always there from, yeah. from a very early age, sort of where, what you're disposed towards. Yeah. Uh, I even dare say, because I've had a beer, uh, even sort of, and I won't get into this too much, so don't worry, but I would say even sexual, uh, 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 um, preferences and just sort of areas in a very unformed pre-sexual way are still present in children. Really? I think. Hmm, and I'm not, I'm not saying children are sexual. I'm just saying that your, your brain, uh, things that you contextualize sort of sexually when you're an adult, I think there's elements uh, just things that are interesting to you as a child. Yeah. That, uh, yes. That, my, that was okay to say, right? Sure. <laughs> it made me think of second grade. No, like, sexual hey. activity happening. No. But my teacher, who I loved as a person, she was warm and engaging. She smiled and made you feel like she really saw you. And when she would come over to help with an assignment and she would lean over. Yes. And I, eight years old, would, like, peek down her shirt and yes. then, and she was like, "There's nothing to see." One, she was like fairly flat chested. Two, she was covered <laughs> up. She was a teacher, but I'd be like, "Oh, at this eight, is, what's going yes, on there?" Like, exactly. And I think this is also the reason why, like, uh, uh, people say, like, my child's identifying as uh, 
uh, trans or and and certain right wing people go how that's ridiculous and it's like no <laughs> right. it's not it is not yeah it, like it, you're not even biologically sexual yet I knew I can remember I'm a straight person I remember being like eight years old and if a girl in third grade was talking to me the day just got a little bit better that yeah. moment was just a little bit better than a boy talking to me yeah. and, just, and I didn't even know why that was and it wasn't about a sort of physical thing but it was just so of course you. Yeah, you know at that age, even though you're not physically sexual yet. This, you know what I mean? Totally. I bring it up like <laughs> I always reference. I was just talking about this with my sister because we were cracking up. We we had, she had found a picture of a kid that we love. We're like, we got to look him up. We haven't seen him in ages, and we miss him. And at six years old, he walked into like one day of kindergarten when it was like bring your te- you know your parents and his mom I guess kind of knew my mom and he's walking in my mom said his name hey so and so and he looked back he had a little like frosted tipped hair it's like six <laughs> and he's just had a strut going on and he looked back and goes it's moi to you you want everyone to call him moi and then yeah. he and I became pretty good buddies and Anytime he'd come over, and I, you know, most of my friends were into like video games and sports yes. and stuff. This is like eight through 10 or 12. He would come over and be like, Hey, what if we go put on all your mom's clothes and do a fashion show? And I'm like, Sounds great. So, what you're saying is this guy later came out as French. <laughs> later ended up being a French individual. <laughs> he's a, he's a, then later was a bully, and now he's a GOP congressman. No, he, uh, he lived his life. He was yeah. who he was and yeah, open. He's and, a good guy. Yeah, but at the time, and maybe it's just a thing as kids, no one to tell us, don't do that. Don't wear dresses. Don't. Because we would take off the dresses and be like, okay, sweet. Now let's play video games. Yes. And then he, I don't really plan to play. Like, no, we did the dress thing. You got to play with us. And then he'd play. And so there was like this sharing thing that it was as kids, maybe you're not noticing. And adults for sure are. Like, James is going to be a voice guy. Look <laughs> at him with his tape recorder. So and so's got, this kid's going to be gay. I remember doing a, a, a thing. Uh in uh, grammar school, like like around third or fourth grade, where we we had to, re- we were, I forget what class it was, but we were like reading in, something into a tape recorder, mm-hmm. and then my teacher commented about how nice my voice was. Oh, there it is. That's that was yeah. like the bir- this is your biography, like the second chapter. And then I remember another boy in school once turned to me with kind of a like a weird expression, and he was like. You sound like Mr. Spock. <laughs> really? You sound like st- from Star Trek. Were you very measured at that time? I don't think so, but, you know, I have a certain way of speaking that, like, I guess can sound a little precise or something. Yeah, there's a there's a cadence to it, but I wouldn't there's say it's, that yeah. it's, like, without any level of affectation or something. <laughs> but I look back on that and I think, oh, yeah, I just, because I sounded like me. I was eight-year-old, so should we go to the playground and... <laughs> You want to play hopscotch, or is that a girl's game? Yeah. What are your thoughts on yeah, skip what are your thoughts? This is me doing an impression of me, which is basically doing like a bad Dr. Venture impression, which is just my voice. Yes. Yeah, what are your thoughts on Skip Pennant? Have you seen The Electric Company? Do people... Hey, fellows. <laughs> let's play Jax. <laughs> you do... Doing... Not that Dr. Spock sounds like that. Mr. Spock, rather. Not yes. Dr. Spock, the great uh, uh, pediatrician. Man. I but it makes I look back, that. I remember that, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Because I just had this weird, my uh, very sidebar. Uh, my parents are both uh, from New Jersey, Hudson County. My dad is from Bayonne. My mom's from Jersey City. Those are those are urban areas right near New York City. And the people who live there, 
Well, first of all, they kind of they tend to talk in the back of their throat. But uh, there's kind of a Jersey uh, accent, which sounds a little bit New York, kind okay. of an East Coast thing. My dad kind of sounds like this. It's a pretty good impression of my dad, Frank, and my mother. Uh, had a uh, a rather precise voice. She had a very modulated sort of voice, and she uh, told me that her, everyone in her family had a Jersey accent. Uh, her sisters mm-hmm. were like, hi Jimmy they talk like that and uh, she told my mother wasn't a performer or anything she did some amateur theater when she was a kid but she never got into show business or anything and she said she just wanted to lose her Jersey accent she was aware she had one mm-hmm. and so she kind of enunciated in this rather precise way sort of how my mother spoke and my dad had a kind of loud Jersey voice so my voice is a combo of my dad's Jersey loudness yeah. and my mother's kind of precision I like and I think it. that's what the kid heard when I was eight, was I probably spoke a little bit like, just had a, a slight precision to my voice as a little boy. Yeah. yeah. Man, the... the like, like Mr. Spock. The subtle variation Captain. that you put in. <laughs> <laughs> Let's play jacks, Captain. Uh, you being little James Urbaniak running around, what yeah. are we playing, fellows? Jacks? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. oh, I love that. Because in my mind, little you, <laughs> eight or ten-year-old you, has a strap over his shoulder with his recorder, and the microphone is out. Like, yes, yes, exactly. What, record, playing jacks? What say you, fellas? Yeah, exactly. Like a uh, a roving reporter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then even still, like, that's theatrical and that's performancey. but then st- for, to go from being interested in voice and play, was it the theater of the mind stuff, or was it more like... Now I want to be those. I, I well, love this about yeah, Walt Disney. A, Walt Disney draws it, sees it, and then goes, cool. Animates it. Hey, there's a world. Now I want to see that thing I drew real. I want Disneyland. I want a place where you can right. go and those characters are physical. It's almost the same, it seems like, with you being like, I heard it. I see that character in my mind. Now I want to go physically play something like that. By the way, uh, another sidebar. that We're talking about this podcast I have, which was called Getting On With James Urbanek, and now we're doing a sort of new version, uh, which I think will be called something else. But but there are little radio plays on mm-hmm. podcast form. But uh, uh, we're writing a series that is sort of, they're all take, they all take place in the past. They're all stories of the past. Whatever the past, the past could be two years ago. They're mm-hmm. just stories that take place before whatever the year is. Okay. Uh, so Dave was in one uh, that we're editing now, which is set in 1976. But... I keep thinking about doing one where Disney, like in the 40s, is a character. Oh, I like it. Sort of 1940s Walt yeah. in Los Angeles. <clears throat> and that's all I'll say. But I've been thinking about that. Now and then I'll be driving and I'll go, Hey, oh, fellows, how's it going? You know, I'm, doing my, I'm working on my Walt. <laughs> I love it. Let's go talk to the girls in ink and paint. <laughs> uh, but yes, well, so the trajectory, you've been, we've been circling around this. Yeah, well, kind of. I mean, I think we're getting like a very... Sort of circuitous yeah. route that kind of takes. The thing was, I always enjoyed performing, <laughs> and I, 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 when I was in elementary school, I would be in school plays, and in third, fourth, and fifth grade consecutively, each of those teachers spent a part of the week where we would write little sketches and do little performances in class. Mm-hmm. And I realized everyone didn't do this in school mm-hmm. for some weird reason. This elementary school I went to in New Jersey in the early 70s. Yeah. Third, fourth, and fifth grade, we'd, we would, part of the week would be like dramatics. They would call it like dramatics. And we would do little kids' plays or write sketches and perform them. 
I like and, I, and so I would do this and I was enjoyed writing and performing and then I was a, I had a lot of energy so kids always wanted me to be in their skits and things in this thing that we would do like once a month or something mm-hmm. and uh, then I and then all through elementary school I would also be in like school plays and was taken to be good yeah I was taken to be good I guess I was good and then I didn't do it so much in high school, actually. I was in like two plays in high school. Freshman year, I was in the chorus of Bye Bye Birdie, a very popular musical done in high schools. Yeah. Because it's most of the cast are teenagers. Yeah. And then senior year, I was in The Boyfriend, which is a musical from the 50s. That's a parody of a musical from the 20s. Now, I want to say this again. <laughs> it's a musical. It's a British musical from the 50s about young people and it's an affectionate parody of a musical from the 20s it's basically Grease Grease is a musical from the 70s that's an affectionate parody of the styles of the 50s, of the 50s. Yeah. and every generation does this uh-huh. and now there's a show called Pen 15 which is an affectionate homage to being a junior high school student like 20 years ago really? yes oh it's just gonna Early be 2000s. so like cyclical yeah but it's every generation does this. So anyway, I then I had a character part in The Boyfriend, where one of the characters is, is a, uh, a randy old man. His name is Lord Brockhurst, and he, like, flirts with girls. Mm-hmm. Oh, hello, my dear! You know. <laughs> and uh, most high school performances are, you sort of shout in a staccato fashion. Hello! Well, this is how you do a high school English character. You, yeah, you got to adjust the level here. But uh, I did that, and uh, I had watched enough Monty Python to do a passable high school English accent. Also, I was not known as a ladies' man in high school. But you could play one on the stage. So, uh, Leah, I didn't express that part of my personality in school, and I was a relatively shy lad. So it was a bit of a... We did a preview assembly where we did some numbers from the show, and me and a, a girl did a number... Uh, and I'm like flirting with her and, and this is very 1981 but uh, I, it's a song called It's Never Too Late where the old man sings how it's never too late to fall in love or indeed to chase girls and things mm-hmm. and so I'm singing with a girl in a flapper costume and then at one point this was the staging I put my hand behind her rear end and pretended to pinch her butt sure and she goes oh and she goes oh exactly and uh, but you're like a foot behind, and you're yeah, a few inches. It was like stage kind. It was like when someone punches somebody in a movie that you move your head. Yeah. So I didn't really touch the girl, uh, and we were all fine with this joke. So it was the director, Mr. Sinclair, mm-hmm. and uh, the crowd went nuts. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Yeah. Jimmy or Baniac, Jimmy, but you're Jim back then. Yeah. Uh, first of all, performing with a lot of energy and relish. And then playing like a, a horny guy. They were like, I, we can't, this is stunt casting. Jim, what are you doing? It was crazy. And then kids I never even talked to after the show were like, you were really good in that. <laughs> like it brought the house down. And that was sort of a pivotal moment where I never thought about being a professional performer then, mm-hmm. nor did I right after then either. But there was a lot of satisfaction in knowing that that had gone very well and that people really responded to that. 
I, in seventh grade, played a character named Merton Manley. I don't know if that's like, I think it was just a play one of the administrators wrote. Kind of vaguely Western. I'm like a sheriff. Yeah, it's a good name. Merton, Merton Manley. Manley. And at some point, one of the characters gave me a rock. Yes. And I'm, I think I'm sitting there holding my gun, and she gives me this rock. And then in rehearsal, and I was like around the cowboy world and stuff like that. I knew a lot of, and just Nevada, northern Nevada. People, right, people right. People spoke with a certain way. Kind of like what we started off our uh yeah. This whole conversation with is like being familiar with the world that you live in and right. not recognizing like, oh, maybe someone in L.A. wouldn't know that. Yes, in that, yes. like I said to the, I assume the director, what if I said this? And I kind of just improved or threw out this line of where I go, first time a girl ever give me a rock. Not gave, but give, which was a very like Northern Nevada kind of cowboy way of yes. saying something. First time a girl ever give me a rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I said that and they're like, I, yeah, I mean, you, you can throw that in if you want. I don't know how it'll go. And I did it at the last. And same thing, like that reaction stuck with me. A li- Not enough to like, I'm doing this forever. But I do remember that rush, that weird feeling of, oh, this feels fantastic. Yeah, I think every performer has that uh, somewhere when they're younger. Mm-hmm. Remembering the, the reaction you got from being on stage. I remember doing a play when I was in sixth grade in middle school, and I did an ad lib because something went wrong on stage, and I did an ad lib mm-hmm. and it brought the house down. And then for years, I would see that uh, later. I would like see that teacher around, and she go, "Remember when you said that thing?" <laughs> Those are the best. Yeah. She probably tells, still they tell are. that story. They are the best. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right. And then she the- saw the Al Pacino movie and was like, <laughs> I remember when that <laughs> thing fell down on stage and he made a joke about it. <laughs> but yeah, so there was just, I was always drawn to that uh, thing of performing as a kid, but just the way you, you know, in school. And then I went to a, I, I kind of spaced out and was a bit of a fuck up in high school. <laughs> well, I had this happen. I started playing football ah, in ninth grade. Uh, so eighth wow. grade, the, the director- You're a sensitive the, jock. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I got it. But I was really leaning into like, <laughs> I was taking out my frustration. You're like uh, 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 Pink and Dazed to Confuse. That's who you are. Yeah. The jock like, who likes the stoners and the, and the weirdos. Yeah. I, Not a bully. I, well, I was still say, no, I don't think I, I, hopefully no one thought I was a bully. I was tiny. I was so small. I oh, been, you were? Yeah, I was the littlest guy, and I wouldn't have been a very good bully. I was short until I was 16. I was the shortest kid in school. Same. Until I was 16. So when I was Merlin oh. Manley, very similar to being, uh, to go. Jim, I I was the lady, the hero in that story, and I'm like four foot nine. Yes. But on the stage, <laughs> a giant. <laughs> but I started playing football, and in eighth grade, uh-huh. the director of the play this woman who'd been so nice to me and she was um like the ap english teacher later yes. and she had let me turn in this story late and then she liked it so much that she gave me a higher grade <laughs> than i was supposed to get and she read it in front of the whole class and like really embarrassed me but she loved the story that i wrote so much and then yes which was about uh, shaggy and scooby-doo <laughs> standing yeah. up for themselves i think you know what it was <laughs> <laughs> yes. and she directed or helped with the play in seventh grade, maybe that one. Eighth yes. grade, we did Romeo and Juliet, and she wanted me to wow. play Romeo. She pulled me aside and goes, "You can have the part." Holy cow! Yours. And I didn't really want to. I didn't. When I thought the character, this would be like you know, eleven or, or twelve or thirteen years old, being like, "Romeo's kind of a lame character." I was more into like Mercutio and Paris, so I played. I think I ended up playing Paris, yes. oh, and. Yes. Um, 
the kid that ended up playing Romeo, we were friends. Ninth grade, he started playing football. We we're both playing football. I was a little more athletic than him, so I was doing better. I was smaller though, and then he, but also was applying or he went and auditioned for the school play that year, and I didn't. And but I remember thinking like, I kind of want to. We'd be walking out to practice with like you know, helmets in hand, and I would see the thing you know like tryouts are this time yes and he went tryouts. and did it he exactly. missed he missed one of the days of practice to try out and then i remember seeing him a couple weeks later or maybe a few days later like kind of sprinting and throwing his hands in there so excited he'd gotten the part and there were two things in my mind one was like i was kind of like theater kid i'm this cool jock like i don't <laughs> i don't do theater anymore the other half was kind of like ah dang it like i i kind of i kind of wish i'd gotten that part because I know like right. I can act at least as well as him. And I, I just didn't do it. And I moved on into the jock world. So you saying you were kind of a fuck up. like Fascinating. Was it you saying, did you still miss it and look at it from afar like that? Or were you still trying to pursue no. it? No. That's an interesting question. No. I, well, I did, I did like to play when I was a freshman. And then when I say it was a fuck up, I just mean that... I, feel, I just sort of stopped paying it. I was always sort of a good student all through elementary school. And then I just sort of stopped caring. Mm-hmm. And I just really lost interest. But I wasn't partying or drinking or anything. I never had a drink till I was 18 years old. You strike I never smoked kids. anything. It just wasn't interesting enough for It you. just wasn't interesting. Yeah. And uh, it's an open question if it would have been if it had been a different school or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then I, w- I got to the point where I was like 15 and I was skipping classes. I was like just leaving the school. Yeah. I was literally walking off the grounds <laughs> and wandering around. But not smoking, not drinking. No, I, that's the thing though. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then I was sort of no but I was sort of like reading stuff that interested me and uh, but I wasn't doing anything particularly creative my mind was elsewhere Mm -hmm. the point is Dave that (laughs) I I didn't work hard on my studies and so by the time I remember my friend Dan we were like it was the beginning of junior year and they were he was like so what colleges are you applying to and I went uh you haven't you got to do that. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then I uh, I sent for applications for New York University. I remember the application in 1981 had a picture of a very attractive brunette girl sitting at a desk. And I was like, wow, they they, they put that in there to try to get guys to come to this school. Like, uh, mm-hmm. there'll be some cute dark-haired girl in New York. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, Rutgers. And then I applied to Rutgers. So you you had your diploma. You'd finished. I grad. I barely graduated, but I did graduate. And then I applied to Rutgers and wrote them a cover letter explaining why I was more focused now. Mm-hmm. Sorry, my grades are it bad. It didn't work. Yeah, sorry, my grades are bad, but I'm really focused. And here's some big words. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of who you want. If I will indubitably student. be an excellent student. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Uh, so um, I As didn't get in. But then there was a there was a community college called Brookdale Community College in Lincroft, New Jersey. Oh, so Rutgers I, said no. Oh, they said no, and that was the only school I applied to. I didn't even apply. To, I didn't even bother applying to NYU. Mm-hmm. No, they said no, and uh, I said they should have. There was no there was no evidence on paper that I would be a good <laughs> a, a good candidate for the State University of New Jersey. Yeah. So I went to uh, this community college, Brookdale, and they had a relatively new performing arts center and some very wonderful and inspiring theater teachers, particularly a woman named Nina Garcia, and um, 
we would I did acting classes there, and then I was in play after play after play. There was also a student theater company. One of my oldest friends, a guy named Michael Gans, I met in that school, and he's now a writer-producer in L.A. The two of us went to show business. Cool. And stayed. And other people from that class also did some acting. And step professionally. It was kind of an interesting when, when people, generation. When you, <laughs> not that you skipped over it, but when people hear like, well, community college, theater, you could just show up and be in it. You're saying you're being in lots of plays. Were you auditioning and getting part after part? I, I, yeah, I was auditioning and, and that's when I, I started getting all the parts. And and then there were like student plays and we'd just be like, well, who plays what? And mm-hmm. I would play like the grandfather and you can't take it with you because I was good at character roles. Mm-hmm. And then one day... I probably it was probably my second year, and Nina, the theater teacher, she in a very low key way, she said to me, "Well, what do you think you're gonna do when you, uh, you know, leave the school?" I was like, "I don't know," because I wasn't really on her. That I, I was, I also wasn't as focused on sort of transferring to another college. I said, "I don't know. I, I maybe I, at the time I was thinking about being like a graphic artist. I like mm-hmm. to draw." I said, "Maybe like the graph, a cartoonist or a graphic artist," and then she said. Well, I think you could be a professional actor. Nice. And that I remember that I was like 19 years old. And she just said that in a very matter-of-fact way. Mm-hmm. Just, just throwing it out there. Yeah. And that meant a lot to me. And, and, but then it was like a couple of years later where I thought, oh, maybe this is what I want to do. And then the, then the big event for me was in the mid-80s when I was in my early 20s. I met... Uh, a woman named Karen Coonrod, who became my mentor. She was 10 years older than me. She is an interesting person. She'd been a teacher in uh, Monmouth County where I was living. And she started directing plays at the high school that she taught at. She was a young teacher. And she started doing kind of wacky stuff, like just she had a real visual sense and was sort of doing creative stuff with these kids. And then realized, oh, I think I want to do this for a living. (laughs) I don't think I want to be a teacher anymore. I think I want to direct plays. So she applied to Columbia University, which had a prestigious theater directing program back then. Mm -hmm. Probably still does. And uh, part of her application was a VHS tape of a high school play that she had directed. But that had a very interesting visual lighting and thing. And she got in. And I met her when she was sort of in the middle of that program. And we just became great friends. And I was doing community theater on the Jersey Shore circuit. And she had been hired to direct a play at a park. Uh, it was As You Like It, uh, Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Again. And we met and did this thing together. And it was just, she was so creative. And we just understood each other. She would come up with these ideas and I was so excited by them and, and it was totally different than anything I'd done and she said well I want to I want to move to New York and form a theater company and I was like 23 at the time and I thought I was I was a, I was a quintessential slacker like not going to college a kind of arty kid yeah when I saw Richard Linklater Slacker, it, which was shot in 89, came out in like 91, yeah. I was like, I, this is me. I, <laughs> that was my world. Like already kids who were kind of just floating around but in, that's in the, why in the uh, late 80s. You yeah. <laughs> sitting down to do all the audio editing for your, for your, your I want to call it a movie, but it's not, it's not visual, like your project, your project. Oh yeah, my, the, well yeah, we were talking about this earlier. I don't know if that's going to be on 
in this show. Yeah. But yeah, the, the, the scripted podcast I'm writing is like a feature-length story, so it's basically like an audio movie. But you sitting down to do that, to me, is such an undertaking that you watch something like Slacker or know that story or know people like that or see yourself as that. And yes. people go, you're, no, you're really productive. And you're like, at my core, I want to just like, just piss off everything and just kind of like go grab a bite to eat and then maybe lounge around, <laughs> maybe catch a movie. I want to do as little as possible. Yes. So were you doing that? Like it, to me, it conveys like a work ethic and a thing that did you, is this where you start to learn that? Like working with her? It was just, <laughs> it, that was that it, uh, stuff was exciting. It was exciting to commit hours of time and labor to making plays with this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think if I wasn't inspired, I was lazy. I would leave school and walk around Marlboro, New Jersey. Yeah. And suddenly I was really excited to put in time and to work at something. Yes, that's right. That's cool. That was And exciting. I love when that like interlacing happens where she could be in a position of not authority necessarily, but feeling you out. Do you work hard enough? Are you inspiring me? But it's so much better when it folds together where you just kind of like each other's ideas. Yeah, and, and she, very she was a, a older than me. She a little more experienced, although we were both sort of starting out in the arts sort of at the same time. Mm-hmm. But uh, she like had a little more, she had a few more years of adult life than I had, mm-hmm. you know. And But we were just sort of, it was just a perfect, just a perfect, uh, uh, confluence and we just kind of and we both had these sort of crazy ideas and 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 she had a i i hadn't seen her in years and i actually saw her last year when i was in new york it was wonderful uh but yeah i call her my mentor because she really was and then that and she was very she was going to columbia and she was getting very excited and influenced by sort of avant-garde stuff uh for lack of a better word, experimental theater. Mm-hmm. And so I started seeing lots of weird stuff in New York City that was very inspiring to me. And uh, yeah, it was a great time. And then, so then I moved into New York when I was like 24. But yeah, and then to go back a step though, you have this weird education that you've in, inferred in a weird way and like yeah. doing all those plays, seeing what yeah, is the norm. Yeah. It's like a painter that's just doing constant landscapes. Yeah, because I don't have any formal training. I went to a community college and then I took a handful of classes at a acting studio in New York called HB, the Herbert Berghoff studio, which is like a famous acting studio oh, okay. uh, downtown in the West Village. I had a great acting teacher named William Hickey. He's an old character actor. Uh, but were you feeling spirited enough if you will at this point to like I'm doing it I'm moving to New York that's a big jump to go like it was just at the here's the thing Uh, before I moved in I had spent two and a half years working in an office in New Jersey (laughs) Uh, uh, working for Equifax Services which is part of a huge class action like lawsuit now because (laughs) yeah they they had an idea stealing people's or not stealing but getting their stuff hacked yeah exactly and I worked for and I just because that was a time where I was like not moving into New York but hadn't committed to being a professional actor was doing amateur theater living in New Jersey just working a day job not coming to school anymore I was like 22 just Mm -hmm. hanging out yeah and uh, and just had this job that I'd go to every day. I'd wear a little tie and shirt. I started out in uh, 
I sort of did research for them, and then I, I got upgraded to customer service. I would call people on the phone. Getting upgraded to customer service. Yeah, let me tell you. And then by the end, I was like, I, this has to end. I did, it was just sort of, it just made, because I met Karen and then was thinking about doing this. And I was like, I just got to, not that I was going to make a living at it, but I was like, I got to move into New York and I'll just temp there because mm-hmm. I had good office skills. I still do. <laughs> it doesn't work out. You can always go I'm back. I'm a fast typist. I don't know what uh, programs they're using these days. <laughs> back then, it was like early word processing. It's like pre-graphic oh, yeah. user interfaces. Mm-hmm. It was like multi-mate. I know how to tear the <laughs> word printer perfect. paper off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Back when screens were just like yellow letters on a green screen. Yeah. You remember that? And they'd blink. That's Yeah, they'd blank. That's what I used to. Early word processing. I love this because it's just so like so many movies on my. Like, I should make a movie about the temp world, uh, circa nineteen eighty nine ninety. This I'm thinking of in um, New York City, yes. Michael J. Fox in Secret of My Success. Secret of My Success, Where racing he, up and down from the mailroom. He moves like, to the big city. Yeah, yes. and he it, for a brief period, even in Big, when he works across from John Lovitz, and he's in that like cubicle and the similar computer styles interfaces. Or uh, yes, or um. Uh, uh, what's its face? Uh, Martin Scorsese, uh, 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 Griffin Dunn. Oh, I haven't seen that. Uh, After Hours. Oh, okay. After Hours. He he's. It's like the late eighties, and he's got a little late eighties computer. Yeah. So you're doing like a quintessential <laughs> like, working, not data processing, but you know, you're you're doing like the. Well, I started doing data entry, which is really just. That's right on the nose. That I is. once had a data entry job in New Jersey that was, it was like a comedy. It was, it was in a warehouse, I was temping, and they were like, you have an assignment, it's this company. It was a warehouse in New Jersey. Uh-huh. And literally, there was a small metal desk, it looked like your sewing machine desk here, mm-hmm. in the corner of a giant warehouse. It was like a David Lynch <laughs> or a Coen Brothers movie, or Office Space, or something like they put <laughs> Milton in the, in the warehouse. Yeah. You know? One corner, a metal desk, <laughs> A 1989 PC uh-huh. and a stack of punch cards. And my job was entering the numbers of the punch cards. Oh, my God. Five, seven, eight, three, nine. And after two hours, I hadn't made a dent in this stack. <laughs> and I was like, this is hell. <laughs> you know what? Even if I move to New York and I work in a warehouse there, at least I'll be in New York. Yeah, you're doing a boring job in a place that's at least interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then I finally moved into the big city uh and we started doing our plays there and it took a while to get attention but eventually we did we all had day jobs and uh and one thing led to another and here we are (laughs) (laughs) that's that's the abbreviated version but yeah that was it like late 80s i moved into new york and we started our theater company and uh, we were work mostly downtown. And there was a whole generation at that time who were doing theater in New York City in like the late 80s, early 90s. Well, uh, one thing, some thought, of whom are still doing it. When you hear <clears throat> people bring up always like the Ed Harris and um, John Malkovich company, yes. all these famous companies. But then when you hear anyone's story, and the thing I really like about the theater community is they'll go, well, I was there and this person was there. 
and we stayed up all night and we went back and forth over this. We fell in love. We all did, the, you know, these, yes. these magical New York things. Yes. The thing I love is they always pay a certain level of respect to the people that maybe went a different route, didn't make it. Because when we hear from people that have scurried oh. out of it or whatever you'd call it, like risen a bit, it almost seems like they were the only ones at the time. And then you think, oh yeah, well, New York wasn't competitive. It's always been. From like the 30s, there yes. were thousands of people that went there with a dream Hundreds of them that stuck with it, and then dozens of them that made it our, a little further. It's a, yes, our theater company, uh, I used to say, was sort of a home for like wayward actors. We had a few company members who had done it for a while and had kind of fallen out of it. And for one reason or another, like that magnet I was talking about, mm-hmm. where you're just doing something, they found us. We found them. Yeah. And they were wonderful people. And so there were those people. And then when the company. The company ran for about 10 years. It was about 88 to 98. And after we stopped, because me and Karen started getting work, people were paying us to act and direct. Nice. And we were like, this is nice mm-hmm. that we can... And I love that but you some of those other, out of... Yeah, some of those other people just kind of faded back into whatever they were doing. And, and some of my best memories of, of theater performances are just theater actors in New York who aren't you know, famous per se, but that I linger in my memory, you know. It's nice of you to say, I mean, stand-up, the per se would be gone. It would just be, there are some of my favorite stand-up sets I've seen were by people that had just a great open mic set who never even got paid to open or Mm -hmm. feature at a club ever, but were so funny and just didn't stick with it or didn't, maybe... For whatever reason, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's a choice. I mean, it's always a choice. Of course it's always a choice. Mm -hmm. But, you know... It's it the lifestyle. <laughs> it's not for everybody. No, you know. <laughs> and I'm sure that they were seeing what you were doing, and you were probably thinking like, "I'm just having fun. I'm just hanging in there." And they were like, "Man, James has got his shit together. Like he's putting on plays, and he's working with this woman, and they are ambitious. They're organized. They show up on time. They yes. print things out and they distribute them." Going back to Slacker, a lot of people. I'll just show up when I can. <laughs> And hopefully be good when I do and someone also, will see there me. Were, there was a fun scene because there were very, yes, I think we were professional. And even though we weren't making money, we were serious. I remember doing a play downtown around that time, like, I don't know, 1991 or something. And we just knew all these people working off of Broadway in the East Village. Mm-hmm. Back then, we're uh, sort of like bourgeois people weren't coming down to the East Village to go to bars and hang out. It was just sort of arty people and local people who mm-hmm. lived there. And I, remember I was doing some play, I don't remember what it was, downtown. And we and we were talking rehearsal schedule. And we're all sitting there like the first day. Okay, so when can we rehearse? And we're, all right, so how's like next Thursday at like, and a girl who was in the cast said, Oh, I can't really plan that far ahead. <laughs> it was like a parody of like a spacey hipster. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know what I'm going to be doing. Thir- I can't plan that. Yeah. If she was just some arty girl, who, some spacey girl who <laughs> fell into being in this play because that was what the community was. People who were really serious about it and people who were just weirdos. But and I remember a- even that because I, I was like, I loved alternative thinking. And I was yeah. like, Come on, lady, come on. We can all agree that we'll be here Thursday to rehearse a play. I still see that nowadays, though. I see it in people that are older than me. Oh, I, I go, can't. Like, I, a week? Yeah, Call me the day I don't before. Know what, maybe yeah. I'll show up. <laughs> I, if you, if this, 
in any way resonates with you and you're listening, I can't give you better advice than to mark that. That's how plans get made. Now you do have something. 1 p.m. on that Thursday, just go, oh, now that's what I'm doing. I don't know what I'll be doing. You do. That's your plan. And that girl's name was Reese Witherspoon. It really all worked out. She figured a few things out. <laughs> the The... I always feel like when people will look back on those periods, like we were doing it for the love of it. We'd go eat greasy cheeseburgers and we knew a bartender. Yes, we'd get exactly. cheap whiskey or whatever yeah. it was like that. <laughs> there was a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. That just seems so quintessentially New York and something you'd miss. It was. And it was very romantic. It's also a young person's game because even though when you move to any big city, you then you also meet very wealthy people who are just on your. On your, Yeah. I remember being at a party like around that era and I was I was chatting up a girl and I was like, What's your name? He was like, Cindy. And I was like, Oh, Cindy what? Rockefeller. She said with a kind of sheepish Whoa. look on her face. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh yeah, here we are. <laughs> My family uh, yeah. built this city. Yeah, yeah. I live in upstate Tarrytown and no biggie. But uh, yes. But people, what I love is <laughs> when people like that intermix in because they need that and not that I saw you see this in movies that people need the cowboy world. Oh, I need something authentic. But people in that world seem to need the beatniks and the... To br- so you and were I got, Yes, and I got to say that, uh, you know, my dad was a public school teacher, so do the math. We <laughs> didn't come from a wealthy background. No. But, uh, but you had this... There thing. were... I did know people in New York who had trust funds and came from wealthy families who were also genuine artists yeah. and really talented. Yeah, you can't... I know a girl who was a great actor and ran a theater... Co- co-ran a great theater company. And she was like an heiress to like the Pepsi Cola company. <laughs> like she never worked a day in her life, but she was really good. Yeah. I, I, did you have a period though where you really frowned on that? No, I didn't. I see. I did. I had a period where I was like, well, what, who cares what they did? They, 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 they got all this money that who, where should we give any credence to what they do? And then after a while you realize, well, they had maybe more opportunity. They didn't have to go get up early and work a job they hated I, yeah. I'm not talking about the indifference or even the uh, <laughs> the harmful behavior of wealthy people mm-hmm. I'm just talking about people in the arts yeah. who happen to come from wealthy backgrounds who are genuine artists and those do exist <laughs> absolutely there are did in- you ever see Bill Gates paintings <laughs> they're incredible <laughs> uh and then, so like, not to get into breaks necessarily, but I would oh, put, yeah. a, put no, a point into a... something like Dr. Venture or, you know, review was so great. Things like that that are after the fact, after you're already established, after you're, you're doing yes. it. But things that, you know, fall in, I, I just think it's so interesting once you're on a path, you go, okay, I did no, it's, this. No, so it's a series of, like, the first break was meeting Karen, who... Mentor, is the reason I moved like, to New York, yeah. And, and she seems so much more too than just mentor. Motivation, inspiration, yes. like example, all these great things. Yeah, yeah, very important. And then I was, that brought me to New York where I was doing like downtown theater and just not making money but working, but being very, very... Getting your 10,000 uh, hours, so to speak. Ex- indeed, indeed. And then... Uh, um, and then there were a series of others. There was like, a, there was, there's a great director in New York named Richard Foreman, who's like in his 80s now, probably, but he, he's done his own sort of, again, this word, but avant garde plays in New York for years. And he's brilliant. Anyone, any New York theater person knows this guy. And when I first uh, moved to New York, I saw one of his plays, went with Karen, 
and uh, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. And uh, I thought, I want to work with this guy. And then in like 95, I did a play with him mm -hmm. just from being downtown and meeting him and him seeing me and stuff. And that was actually a very significant thing for me was to be in a Richard Foreman play. And uh, so that was like a big... Oh, and then I like... Here's another brag. I want... The Village Voice gives out these awards for off-Broadway called Obies. OB, off-Broadway. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's kind of a... It's like the downtown version of, in you know, a, a Tony or whatever. Sure. And so I won one for that play. Nice. And uh, that was exciting. So that was a big deal. For the and, Richard Foreman one? Yeah, yeah. Nice. And then, uh, and then one of the other big... Uh, uh, events was meeting Hal Hartley, who's a great independent film director out of New York. We made a movie called Henry Fool in 1987. It came out in 98. And that's the thing that opened the door in terms of getting an agent. I never had an agent before. Mm -hmm. And like doing film and TV. So no suddenly I was like, in, I had a big part in like an independent film. Because it's the old Catch-22 uh, not Vonnegut, Joseph Heller, uh, where uh, same same generation though, mm -hmm. kind of weird guys who were in World War II and wrote about it. Yeah, wrote kind of weird comic novels about it. Mm -hmm. um, He's um, uh, <laughs> Catch Twenty Two. Yeah, saying exactly. That. I didn't yeah. pick up on that. I apologize. Yeah, yeah. No, it's all right. I like that. There's a whole generation of there's a, a, writers who wrote about that experience, and a couple of them wrote weird comedy novels that are also very dark but i read it a few years ago and it it's the i mean it's so beautiful in that like he's saying like a lot of like fuck you fuck all of this very kind of pointed stuff in a silly way that was probably acceptable then but people reading it would like kind of wink at each other well because like, also like those writers also became especially beloved during the vietnam generation even though they were writing about world war ii because they're sort of antiest because there's something somewhat heretical about yeah oh yeah about r r writing skeptically about the military mm -hmm. specifically the you know World War Two mm -hmm. if and those guys were both there they were in it yeah where were we <laughs> <laughs> um, you said Joseph Heller and then I thought you were going off on a thing you said a catch twenty two oh yeah so when you first get an agent or try to get an agent. That's it. They, you can't get an agent unless you have film and TV credits. Oh, that's the age old and thing. And you can't get, more get film How? and TV credits yeah. without an agent. Yeah. I remember once I went, I had a friend who was, had an agent and she was working and she, through her, I met a guy at an agency and I had nothing. I had never done film or television and I had, <laughs> you can imagine what this looked like. I had clips of me in plays downtown shot in 1980s video cameras. Yeah. Can you imagine how crappy this looked? And the guy was like, I think you're really talented, but I can't sell anything here. That's what he said to me. <laughs> There's nothing I can sell to casting people. Yeah. I can't, this guy's, this kid is great. He was in a play off off Broadway where he put a, potato on his head and spun around <laughs> yeah just like some experimental weird thing well what i was gonna ask you though is like getting you said henry's what's it called oh henry fool henry fool i you know you're in you're immersed you're in the theater scene in new york you're, you win an ob after the fact like but the richard foreman play yeah when you go into audition for something like 
Is it a big deal, an independent movie, or is it like, this is basically a play? That was a huge deal. Well, no, and that director, Hal Hartley, he'd seen me in Stuff Downtown, and then I was working at a theater company that he used to come to their shows, and we'd all hang out afterwards. So I'd gotten to know him kind of socially for a couple years, and then he just asked me to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've told this story before, but he called me up, and I knew I'd seen his films. He made several films at that point, maybe like four features. Uh, starting in the early 90s, and he called me up, and uh, he said, hey, I have a new script, and there's a part I'd love you to play. And I went to meet him. We met at the White Horse Tavern in Greenwich Village, famous bar. And uh, uh, we sat down, and I thought, this is awesome. He's going to ask me to be like the waiter, you know, mm-hmm. in like the funny restaurant scene. Mm-hmm. I'll have like one little part. And, and then he said, there are three main characters in this movie and I want you to be one of them. Whoa. And then, I, yeah, I couldn't believe it. And then he gave me this, this is, this is pre-PDFs. There's no, <laughs> we're not emailing each other back then. Here's, it's, like nine, it's like 94. Does it have three holes punched in it, but only two of them have the brads in exactly. it? Exactly. Yeah. A two bradder in a, an envelope with a little metal fastener thing. Showbiz, baby. Yeah. And I said, he said, uh, he described that, and I was like, yes. <laughs> and he pulled out the script, and he, went, and he said, well, read the script. <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, yeah, I'm going to read it and go, no, I don't want to be in your movie. <laughs> I've never been in a movie. I'm not going to play a part in your movie. Also a director who I've seen your movies and I like them. Yeah. Did you so, tell, but you can't tell him this? Or is there any level of like playing it cool or the, the business of show business there? Or are you just, can you say that to him openly? No, like, not with, I don't think I said, uh, I don't think I said, yeah, like I'm going to say no after I read it. But we were friendly. Yeah. We were basically friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, so uh, that was that was a major uh, chapter that began there. And then it actually took him a long time to raise the money, so we didn't start shooting for like a year and a half. So, and I would get different copies of the script through that period. But eventually, he he did it, and uh, and then much like that other guy who didn't take me on as agency said, I now I was in a movie. Mm-hmm. So I started auditioning for movies and TV. And can you sell this, buddy? Yeah, can you sell sell this? I said, <laughs> grabbing my crotch. <laughs> uh, we're on podcast, so I had to explain that. Um, yeah, and then I started making a living at this, and that was it. My last <laughs> week of temping was the week before we shot that movie. Oh man, that's great! I literally temp. Oh no, actually, tell a lie. We made the movie in the spring of 97. It came out a year later, but that winter, I tempt again for a few weeks to make some extra Christmas money. But just on like, because I don't have to I got to buy here. some gifts. No, but I gifts. was like, well, this, and I wasn't quite, hadn't, it was really when it came out is when I started getting other. Yeah. And at the time, I got paid like what I thought was amazing. And now it was like, oh, that was like a 90s low budget movie wage. But I'd never made a living doing this. So for me, it was yeah. like crazy. And it was a genuine like <laughs> foot in the door. Like you are a oh, professional totally. now. Yeah. You're in the game. And then I had a, I, I already had a voiceover agent. I'd kind of finagled my way into that. Uh-huh. And I wasn't making a lot of money doing it, but I'd sort of gotten my foot in the door. And that agency 
what they call the theatrical section, which means just regular acting, not just plays, but like movies and TV. Yeah. A guy from the theatrical part of the agency, when that movie was being made, called me and said, hey, in a very h and way. He was like, hey, James, uh, we hear you're doing this movie with Hal Hartley, and you should come talk to us. Come talk to us in our office about nice. maybe... Uh, so then that, I got my first agent for like regular acting. And, yeah. and suddenly I'm like having meetings with Robert Altman. Whoa. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's... I like mean, I'm just on the track of being a working actor. You know? Yeah. And then I started getting stuff and uh, it kept happening. <laughs> people, <laughs> people kept hiring me for some reason. And for but good just, reason. You know, the slower years... Uh, I Better love that years. though. The longer you're in it, people ask, how is it? And you go like, because I've gone from, you know, early on dating Emily Rose, people would go, uh, so, you know, what does your boyfriend do? Oh, he's a comedian. And then maybe she'd say like, he headlined this comedy club. It's like yes. a big one. And then they'd go, oh. And then a few years later, like he's in this or he's, he, had, he, did, he was currently hosting this television show. And instantly they, oh, what? Something they'd never heard of. Just the concept of it going well was like uh we've got to hang out around him and then <laughs> and then years later like the just the up and downs it's kind oh, of yes. enjoyable to no, be it's... like i go back to like the 18 year old of making that kind of do i put my foot in this world knowing you know when you're 18 that it's not just you don't just become al pacino you yes there's gonna be some ups and downs oh yes there then there still are <laughs> but that's part Big of it time. Like, yes, people yes. go how's it going you go you know good years bad years how's it going yeah. right now yeah what's up with you you know like you're, yeah it's always kind of the i think people develop a cool level of not acceptance because that sounds like accepting defeat but like a realization of what it is to be alive and how do you process the real great periods with the lows in a very similar way to just be like, this is the world I agreed to yes. exist this in. This is the business we have chosen. Yeah. Well, we <laughs> could go on and on. We have a little bit more beer left. I don't know if you want to do some <laughs> bonus chatting, but this has been phenomenal. How'd you oh, like this yeah. uh, Liquid Truth series? I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I think it's great. Well, if you want to do some bonus chatting, we can continue that. Yeah, we can do a little bit. Okay. How great is that guy? Just real fun to chat with hilarious dude uh there's more of that conversation in the patreon so uh give it give it a give it a listen and uh thanks again to those of you who do support the show on patreon there's usually a bonus episode per month sometimes more sometimes uh some behind the scenes stuff it's hard to say usually uh there is at least something per month extra just as a a thank you to those of you who do support the show. It does make a difference, and I appreciate it. So uh, if you've been thinking about doing it, you know, for the the for like 50 cents a week, if you listen to this show regularly, uh, you, can, you can support it, help it stay on. Also, with the holidays coming up, if you want some screen prints, like a little uh, Space Cave t-shirt or a uh, Space Cave poster, check out thespacecave.com. You can get all that stuff there. Maybe get that space burger in your life. Some holiday gifts. And I mean mostly Christmas. I don't know why that's such a, a hot-button word, for heaven's sake. Most people who get gifts during this time of year are doing it because of Christmas, I would guess. So, to those of you who do support it, or do celebrate it, enjoy. I hope you have a, 
a great Thanksgiving coming up this week, and uh, or maybe you've changed the the way you celebrate it due to the historical ramifications. There's something nice about getting together and being thankful, but if if you don't, I don't know. Who knows what you're celebrating and or why. But anyway, if you do celebrate that, whether you uh, look back at the um, the history of it and celebrate the whole bizarre story that, as far as we know, isn't necessarily <laughs> even remotely true, uh, great. If you just like to get together with friends and have some food, also fun. If you like to just go about it as if it's just another Thursday, great. I hope you have a good week, regardless of what you do. And maybe you're listening down the road, like, oh, right, that was a holiday a while back. Or, I live in a different country, I don't even know what you're talking about. Anyway, you can get some, what I'm saying is you can get some merch, merchandise, at uh, thespacecave.com. You can also send suggestions if you have them for guests, or beer, or topics, or music, or whatever, to pings at thespacecave.com. Also, space underscore cave on Twitter. You can get in touch that way. and um, Or you can just continue to listen from wherever. Out here in the friendly confines of space, we're all snuggled in this little cave in the middle of nowhere, the furthest, furthest reaches of our known universe. It's nice having you here. Let's conclude it with some music from Marika Hackman. It's a song called I'm Not Where You Are. Thanks to Dan for putting this all together. And thanks for stopping by the Space Game.